The format of tonight's meeting is two 10-minute speakers, the first of which will speak on the ninth tradition, followed by our information break, and then our main speaker will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10-minute speaker to share on the ninth tradition is Scotty. Hello, everyone. My name is Scotty, and I am an alcoholic. Thank you so much, Hugo. It's good to see you, man. And thank you, Rich, for asking me to speak uh, and do service. And thank you to everyone who keeps this meeting up and, and running. There's a lot of structure to this meeting to keep it going, and I really appreciate every one of you. So thank you. Okay, Tradition 9, short form. AA, as such, ought never be organized but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Okay, get comfortable, everyone. Uh, here's the long form of Tradition 9. Each AA group needs the least possible organization. Rotating leadership is the best. The small group may elect its secretary, the large group its rotating committee. And the groups of a large metropolitan area, their central or intergroup committee which often employs a full-time secretary. The trustees of the General Service Board are, in effect, our AA General Service Committee. They are the custodians of our AA tradition and the receivers of voluntary AA contributions by which we maintain our AA General Service Office at New York. They are authorized by the groups to handle our overall public relations, and they guarantee the integrity of our principal newspaper, the AA Grapevine. All such representatives are to be guided in the spirit of service. For true leaders in AA are but trusted and experienced servants of the whole. They derive no real authority from their titles. They do not govern. Universal respect is the key to their usefulness. Okay, if you're new or coming back, please don't pay too much attention to me. Just concentrate on the steps with your sponsor, and I'm sure your sponsor will get you up to date with the traditions when you're ready. So I'm going to try to keep this as simple as possible because, after all, the principle of this tradition is simplicity. Here's a little AA history. Before Dr. Bob, our AA's co-founder passed away. He said to Bill W., let's keep it simple, meaning our recovery program. Bill later wrote, we need to distinguish sharply between spiritual simplicity and functional simplicity. Bill went on to say, when we get into questions of action by groups, areas, and by AA as a whole, we find that we must, to some extent, organize or carry the message or else face chaos. And chaos is not simplicity. I don't know about you all, but there was enough chaos in my life when I was out there drinking. I don't need any chaos in my recovery program. So I think that's very good guidelines. So basically, the ninth tradition is, says that AA should not should have little organization as possible, which makes no sense to me. You know, but it works. It works because we have a lot of structure which supports action by the groups. And AA as a whole communicates through all that structure. So having little organization does not mean that we are disorganized. So this tradition talks uh, a lot about the AA structure. So I'm going to start with uh, the spirit of rotation, which I mentioned above. You know, uh, two years ago, 
my friend Toby, who is now my service sponsor, asked me to be the corrections chair at the Corrections and Treatment Facilities Committee, CTFC, at Intergroup. And I had never done any type of service like that below the group level. So um, I was a very inexperienced uh uh, trusted servant at that point. So he, uh, Toby taught me everything that he knew about this particular service commitment. And I picked up as much as I could. And I went on from there. And I, you know, when Toby stepped down, I became the corrections chair at CTFC. And I got a co-chair, co Charlie, and I started teaching him what I was taught from Toby, um, my service sponsor. So that's the structure in a nutshell, how it works. We help each other, we work with each other. And, you know, right when um, Toby stepped down as the corrections chair and I stepped in, you know, um, my ego only came into play one time, y'all. <laughs> and I started thinking, I am the corrections chair of the Central Office of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm going, to fix everything that's wrong with the Department of Corrections. So, <laughs> so that's what I thought. But I was quickly, my ego was put into place very quickly. And I remember our primary purpose, which is to carry meetings and uh, correct uh, meetings and um, literature to our members behind the walls. That was my primary purpose, and that's what I needed to stick to. So, you know, over the past five, six months. I, along with all the other correction chairs in my area, and actually all over the 93 areas in, uh, in the United States and Canada, have been talking to each other to try to figure out what we can do to continue to carry the message to facilities um, in lockdown because we can't go there personally. I recently, you know, one of the things we can do is carry literature in or send literature in. I recently was able to carry uh, AA literature into two facilities, the, the federal uh, prison downtown Manhattan and another uh, the Manhattan detention complex in downtown Manhattan. I personally took it there outside, gave it to someone and they have it. And you know, that's the best I can do right now, but that's better than nothing. So I just this past month, I rotated out of my two year position, this two year commitment. And I humbly stepped down, Charlie stepped in my co chair, and he selected a co chair uh, to uh, take over for where he was. That's the, some of the structure. Uh, and also, that spirit of rotation is exactly what the general service office does. If you work there or you'd volunteer there, you do a two-year rotation. If you're a corrections chair, after two years, you become the treatment chair or the literature chair. And this spirit of rotation has worked for this organization for a long time. So um, I don't have much time, so I want to uh, talk about the uh, uh, AA structure, the abbreviated version of the AA structure. And if you have any questions, I'll hang out at the end of this meeting at, during the fellowship, and you can let me know if you have any questions. Let me just check how much time do I have. Deborah, got your message. Thank you, honey. Um, so, Alcoholics Anonymous has been um, called the upside down organization because the groups are at the top and the general service board trustees are at the bottom. Everyone in our fellowships are equals and decisions are made by the group as a whole. Each AA meeting or group has a person called a general service representative or GSR. The GSR carries the group conscious to the district level. 
A person from the district level called a DCM or district committee member carries the group message to the area committee or assembly where our area delegate carries all the groups conscious from our area to the AA conference. There the conference, the 21 trustees that make up the general service board consider the issues or opinions raised at the conference. The board issues quarterly reports and the final conference report. These reports go back to the area delegates, then back to the DCMs and the GSRs, and eventually back to the groups or the meetings. It's a bit overwhelming. So thank goodness the second tradition and the ninth tradition interlock. The second tradition reminds us that for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Thank God. And that's the AA structure. You know, about two years ago, two and a half years ago, I had the privilege of going to my first AA assembly called NARASTA, which stands for the uh, Northeast Regional Alcoholics Anonymous Service Assembly. And I will never forget when I went there, I walked into that hotel lobby and I was like, whoa, I was in awe. There were, there were in Maryland, down in Maryland, there were a thousand people from the Northeast at this service assembly, all doing service below the group level. I called it the underbelly of AA. It was amazing to see AA at work. All the general service representatives, the DCMs, the delegates, the trustees and members were all there doing service below the group level. I was, it was just amazing to me. And if you haven't done anything like that before, I suggest you do it. It will kickstart your program <clears throat> like it did mine. I will never forget it. And I hold, hold it dear to my heart. I went to the uh, New Hampshire Narasa in March before the lockdown. And I was so grateful to be there. So I have a good chance of staying sober if I live this AA way of life and I respect the principles and the structure of this program. The simplicity of this program works and is still working. Even in this difficult days, our AA structure is working. Our group meetings are still happening. Our GSRs are still representing and, and, and reporting to our groups. We still get updates from the General Service Office and the AA World Services is still processing literature. Grapevine is offering everyone free online access to all their 2020 Grapevines and Lavinia issues. How wonderful is that, y'all? It's amazing, this structure, and it just keeps going no matter what. I'll close with this, a declaration of unity. This we owe to AA's future, to place our common welfare first, to keep our fellowship united, for on AA unity depend our lives and the lives of those to come. So thank you very much. Our second 10-minute speaker is Kat. Hi, everybody. I'm Kat, a really grateful alcoholic. This is such an honor and a privilege to be here. I love, love, love my home group. Um, my sobriety date is July 30th, 2012. My sponsor is Hannah. And um, this really, meetings are a celebration. We, we've hit the jackpot. Like, we could be out there, you know, drinking, doing something humiliating. I could be dead, you know, but here we are. It's a miracle. And I don't know why 
we are so lucky that we were chosen to be here, but by God, I'm going to hang on to my seat. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about what it was like, what I was like and what it's like now. Um, gosh, I loved alcohol. And then it turned on me is the long and the short of it. (laughs) Um, when I was little, my dad actually is a fellow alcoholic and I used to steal little sips of his beer and a little drag of his cigarette. I was so intrigued. He seemed so charismatic, you know, just this, uh, cocky lawyer. And, you know, I just thought, what is all that? grandiosity and big shotism that looks fun and you know but I was really shy I was like a very quiet straight a little student with a little red bow in my hair and um so I I didn't have that in my nature but then one time at the beach Janet I won't say her last name um Janet in Florida she got a hold of some bubble gum wine coolers and um, the rest is history. It was like electricity when I drank it. It was like my hair got longer and I was wild and I just, oh my gosh, I lied. And I got into a bikini contest that was for 18 and older. I was 12 or 13 and I won a prize and it was like, it might as well have been a million dollars. We had, I think it was like a hundred bucks and we bought Slurpees and bubble gum and a bottle of Jack Daniels. And that encapsulates my, the beginning of my drinking. It was so fun. You know, of course it was. That's how I got enticed into it. And I thought, this is how to be the girl with the most cake. You know, I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to do everything. This is my liquid solution. I'm so brave. This is so fun. But, you know, secretly underneath, there was this real despair growing and this real loneliness underneath the fun. Um, And this fog set into my life. And the fog would get thicker and thicker. And I remember my graduation from high school, I was suicidal. I was the top of my class. I was heading to New York to my dream school. And I remember climbing up, uh, you know, we had, we had drank, we'd snuck some champagne in the hallway and I snuck up onto the roof and I considered jumping. I thought I looked at all the caps and I just felt like there was no way out of, you know, the just drink after drink. And I just thought, you know what, why not just jump? If that balloon lets go on that flag thing, I'm going to jump too. And luckily the balloon didn't let go. And then I, I moved to New York. Um, but for the sake of time, I'll fast forward, you know, my, uh, my drink. Ooh, I think I just went out for a second. Um, my drinking escalated to the point that, you know, I, I had wild fun parties that dream school, you know, I ended up just spending it at the bar, but at the end, you know, I was a bartender. Uh, my, I, you know, I just, 5 p.m. seemed really early in the day, and I knew how to cut limes for the bar, and it was at a rock club, so I loved music. You know, I had a band, and I could get away with a lot in the band because a lot of, I surrounded myself with people that would drink also, Um, but I I wasn't, at first I thought, oh, my hero's Jim Morrison, this drinking will get me, you know, it'll inspire me, but, you know, I just was out of control, and I didn't know how to get a back hold of my life, and I wasn't the girl that I intended to be. And, um, you know, I, I didn't want to come to AA and I'm going to say this for anyone who's new and wondering if you're an alcoholic, if you're wondering you are, I hate to call you out, but I, you know, it took me seven years, 
you know, I, when I knew I was an alcoholic, I still stayed out there for seven years trying every other thing to try to get better because I just did not want to be an alcoholic. So if you're new and you're wondering, just stay. It's, it's actually turned out to be a newfound peace and the best freedom I've ever had in my life. I know you're having a terrible day if you're a new alcoholic, but you know, I know the day you're having and it only gets better. I, I actually can't believe how much, uh, how amazing this program has been. But, um, so when I finally came to you guys, I was exhausted. I, I really had to be because this was the end of the road for me. And, um, but from there, you know, I, I remember my day four was at Perry street and I heard this photographer who couldn't take pictures because his hands were shaking so badly, but then he got sober and he was this renowned photographer for a magazine that I knew. And he talked about the promises, how we get our life back by getting sober. And I made a point to thank him for speaking, but I also said, that's great for you, but not for me. Like I ruined my life. My life is over. Oh, thank you, Deborah. I see five minutes. Um, and he goes, no, no, with a twinkle in his eye. He said, the promises are for everybody. And sometimes you really can hear somebody, and I really heard that, and it gave me so much hope. And I just felt a little lighter when I left that meeting. And I remember I was passing this boutique, and there was a, a little welcome mat for your apartment. It said, Bienvenue. And I thought, you know what? Welcome, Kat. There's something I want, whatever that guy had. There was something good, something twinkly. Uh, you know, and I, it's funny, I, I heard somebody say there's so much God all around us in and in us, and we just cover it up with a bunch of crap and a bunch of defects. And in that moment, I could see a glimmer of higher power. And also, if you're new, don't worry if you don't believe in God. Um, it's really open minded here. You get to create that for yourself. Um, I can't believe how, how beautiful it is, how that unfolds if you stay curious about that. Um, so after that, you know, I did get a sponsor and I did chase this thing. And, you know, when you hear people say it's a life beyond your wildest dreams, I think about what that means. And, you know, it's a lot of it's just in my head. Like I have peace in my head. It's a deep, quiet satisfaction. And, you know, now it's I, I used to love this, like the loneliness and the, this painting, the cat that walks alone. It was an illustration by Kipling. And I just would get into this morose, morbid loneliness. And now my life is so full. I have so many friends and the people that I really intended to meet and the person I wanted to be at the bar stool, I actually get to be now. And I am able to be married. Uh, you know, I, I was not somebody I was always in that dark relationship fighting on the street corner drunk at 3am. And, you know, sorry, that's a shadow of my iPhone. Um, but now I'm actually able to have a, a true partnership with somebody with all of your help. And, and I have a baby, I can't believe that this alcoholic who when I was walking to my bartending job, I would just make it from trash can to trash can barfing from the night before at 5 p.m which i was my morning and now i'm up at 5 30 with my baby singing the sound of music in the hills of carl Schurz park you know we go to the river and you know i, I hold his little hand and i say the third step prayer and like it's just we're you know, singing with birdies. And I just, I mean, not everybody wants a baby and has a baby, but, but, you know, I feel like it's my front row seat to God and whatever your front row seat is, I hope you find it. 
that makes you feel like you've landed and that you're able to be happy, joyous, and free and hold your head up high and really look people in the eye. Like I could never do that before I was sober. There was always people would say, you know, I just can't get cat. There's something in between. There's some fog in her eyes. And, you know, it's just alcoholism. It's cunning, baffling, and powerful. And it stole my life. And I'm glad that you guys helped me get it back. You know, and and uh, not that I was saying before, you guys have taught me everything, how to li- live within my means, you know, how to, instead of fight with people, think, you know what, let me pause. And how did I get the ball rolling? Like, that is not, that was not my reaction before Atlanta Group. But now I notice changed behavior. And, you know, that's the promise of the 12 steps. It says we get a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. And, you know, simply put, it's just changed behavior. You know, I, I I couldn't do it on my own, but you guys have polished me. And, and like now I just, I, I'm able to react to life, my life in the way that I really want to react to it. Um, so I am over blessed. I'm so grateful for my family and friends and that I never feel alone. I always feel I can plug into love and plug into God. And I'm just so grateful we're all here and I hope to stay in touch with all of you. Thanks. Thank you so much. Now, as was said, this meeting is open to anyone. However, we are an anonymous fellowship and ask that what you hear and whom you see remain here. And our main speaker tonight is Debbie. There we go. Hi, everybody. I'm Debbie Davis, and I'm an alcoholic. And it's really great to be here. I love your big book thumper stumper. I know the answer and the page number, but I won't give it away. I'll make you look it up. But I want to enter the contest, so I'll check with Rich and get that where I send my answer. So (laughs) anyway, hi, everybody. And I want to say thank you, Rich, for the invitation. Um, I had the pleasure of speaking live uh, at the Atlantic Group in 2016 on your Tuesday night meeting. I've been here before. And then some years prior to that, um, I had the pleasure. So, and I, I know the you know, structure of your group and I've been well cared for and, ta- and uh, guided. And, um, you know, I just dig this kind of uh, AA. I really do. I love structure. I love dressing up for you. I love the services because like my group, your group has a heartbeat and it has a pulse. And I could, I have been in many groups that were like the wax museum. You know, they were just like, is there anybody alive out there? They're just gray pasty. And that's exactly what I thought AA would be. But gratefully, I have been dropped into four very, very active groups, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But I want to welcome all of our new friends. And uh, thank you to also Scotty on Tradition 9. That's a that's a big step challenge. And uh, thank you for a well-done job. And uh, to Kat, I really related so much of, of her drinking experience because I, too, was a young starter alcoholic. And, uh, you know, that's what I love about uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. We might start and drink and do all kinds of things, but we end up here sharing our experience, strength, and hope. And that's what I've been asked to do tonight. So in a snapshot, we're going to get the Reader's Digest version. And uh, when I was introduced to you, it was through a treatment program. 
And of course, that was a big mistake that I was there. I mean, despite the fact that I was court ordered and committed to be there, it was a big mistake. I mean, my God, I could possibly be an alcoholic. Everybody else thinks I am, but what do they know, right? And I was encouraged to find the similarities of what you were talking about and the information they were giving me. But of course, I'm going to, I've got to find the differences because, well, I, I mean, I know I'm not the brightest bulb in the room, but I do know that if I find the similarities, then I might be one of you. And I don't want to be one of you. I know I'm not done drinking. That I do know. That's very clear. I am not done drinking. And so I find that uh, I would find all the reasons up here why my case was different. And I, in my own small way, began to identify that mustard seed of identification. Um, I heard you say things like, I lost my family because of drinking. Now, some people do lose their family. Some come back, some don't. My attitude was, I'm going to lose my family. Great. This is great. I want to lose my family. They are a constant source of irritation to me. My God, this is great news, not bad news. And down where in my innermost self, where I really live, where the truth is, they had been asked me to leave their home because of my drinking. Now, that took a while to understand. And you talked about uh, drunk driving charges. And I, I never had any of those. I drank when I didn't drive. I drank when I did drive. Drinking just didn't matter. Driving or not was irrelevant. And I had a little bit of an advantage because I would, I worked for the city judge. So when I would be stopped for drunk driving, I knew all the police in this small community. They took my booze. They would tell me to go home. And, you know, sometimes I would. But most of the time, like you, I would go and finish out the drunk. Because once you get started, you can't just, like, stop. I mean, my God. I used to have a, and still do to this day, a girlfriend, when she would say, do you want to go out for a beer? She really meant one. I mean, she really did. And we say that, and really what we're saying is, you want to go out for a night of drinking and getting drunk? That's what we mean when I said, you want to go out for a beer? It's never literally one, but for her it was. And so I knew that if I went with her and I couldn't then leave her to finish the drunk, I didn't even start. I did know that much. It was like torturous to not be able to finish what I had started. Activated. I did not realize that. Um, I heard you talk about totaling out cars. And I know maybe a lot of you don't have a car in New York, and I know many of you are from New York, but I've always lived where you'd have cars. And uh, I'm like, well, you know, I've never totaled out a car officially. You know, I had a little drunk car. So when you buy them, they start rectangular, right? And then, you know, things get in your way. They get rounded out with those drunk bumps and the corners aren't quite as sharp and things are falling off and missing. And my uh, driver's window had been shot out. I don't know how that happened. And my gas cap was a mitten. I had stuck in there, right? I'm like driving a Molotov cocktail around. So, yeah, you know, things happen. That's just the way it is. And so none of these things, and I heard, uh, oh, yeah, you talked about losing jobs. Uh, all right, well, I always had a series of little jobs because I was losing little jobs. And I realized that, yeah, okay, maybe I've been fired from a few. Maybe I quit before I got fired. But in the end, that last year, my drinking, I, I would 
had a little problem. I quit in blackouts. Well, this is a problem when you go to work the next day. You're like, you know, everybody's all surprised and confused and you don't know, understand. And you're just like, one more shrug is really what that is. So what, when they were heard, when I heard you talk about bottoms, they were bounces. Bottoms were bounces. They didn't last. They just bang up, I'll go again. And then I heard those women talk about all those years of prostitution. And I thought, I mean, I could have gotten paid for all that. I mean, my God, what, you know, I could have had a little business going on the side there. But that's how I heard you and how I found all my differences. The problem was, is I heard a couple similarities that I couldn't slough off. And when was you talked about all the broken promises? My God, how do you know about those? Well, because you did them. You talked from your experience. I hadn't been able to keep a promise since I took my first drink. Despite the intention of keeping it, even as it's coming out of my mouth, I know I cannot keep it. And then there was a woman who talked about trying to scrub away the smell. She said that was booze coming through her pores and she was an alcoholic. And I thought, you know, I've had this funny odor for about a year and I don't know what that is. She says that's booze coming through her pores. And I looked at that as if I'm not careful, I might be one of those people. I was not interested in staying sober, but I was interested in getting below your radar. All the people that were watching me below their radar anyway. And I was sent to an all-women's halfway house. I was going to be there three months. You said longer. It ended up being nine the first seven months. So I did the bare bones minimum. I didn't drink. I didn't do any of those other things because that's what they asked. And, and I mean, that makes sense. People are trying to put their life together here. But I went to one Alcoholics Anonymous meeting a month. So that was a requirement. I thought, well, <laughs> Okay, I'm not gonna like I'm not, I'm not sticking around in AA anyway, so there's no need to ramp it up to two meetings a month, you know, and like look like a member or something. So I'm gonna do the bare bones minimum to stay here to get you off of watching me. And I'd walk into the meeting when it started, left when it was over, got her done, check off, went to AA for the month, got her done. Seven months go by, and I have done nothing but put the plug in the jug and gone to a few meetings. I thought that was all was needed for AA. I was so, so remotely mistaken. But that's all I was willing to do. I went to visit my mother in California at the time for two and a half week holidays. First week, I'm hanging out with the people I used to drink with. Who else am I going to hang out with? Last week, and a half drunk and loaded with them. No surprise. But there was a surprise, the drinking. You see, for seven months, I'd lived in fantasy world about the boys, the booze, the dancing, the bar, the having a whoopee party, right, going on. Book, book talks about whoopee parties. Whoa, yeah. That couldn't have been farther from what the reality was. I had a couple of drinks of something, and my next recall is the flight home a week and a half later with an attitude of, whoa, I've learned my lesson. Wow. All I did, still information, nothing's getting below the eyebrows. And all I did was ramp up my meetings from one a month to one a week. That's all I did. 
Five weeks later, I mean, I don't have a sponsor. I don't need one of those people telling me what to do. No, just a footnote. No sponsor has ever told me what to do. They've shared their experience. I've got a big book around here somewhere, but God dang, that's boring. Um, you know, all this kind of stuff. Five weeks later, I get a letter in the mail from one of these very good friends in California. It has one joint in it. And it, I just thought, well, you know, I, I, I'm just going to go ahead and keep it because you, you just never know when you might need something like this. Now, I never liked pot. It is so slow. For God's sakes, it takes you a week to get there. You know, I'm a whiskey drinking kind of girl with some accelerants to it. I want to get downtown right now, not next week. But you know, it's here. It's here. Well, I said I'd keep it for one night, someday when, someday when you might need it. Apparently, I needed it the next day because I smoked that one joint the very next day. What timing that was, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I opened that and I started plotting and planning. And uh, I had no idea that that one lousy joint, which was just going to be another lie that nobody needed to know about. One more secret is none of your business. That defensive arrogance I chugged around. And yet I had no idea that that would be the last day to this, that I would take anything of my own hand that would change the way that I felt and the way that I thought. I had no idea. It was never my intention to ever get sober let alone get sober young. I had a shift. What does that mean? For the prior nine, ten months, yakking, yakking, yakking up in my head. The I knows, the I knows, the I knows, the defense mechanisms. And that shut up and I had that two foot drop where chapter three came into play and admitted to my internet. Oh, I'm so sorry. I thought I had that. Oh, Jesus. Sorry about that. Hello. Uh, I thought I had it on silent. My so, so sorry. Reset here. Uh, My name's Debbie Davis and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm really, no. (laughs) All right. I uh, had that shift happen to me. Where up here was all the yakking going on, and that got quiet, and I had that two-foot drop where I admitted to my innermost self that I'm an alcoholic. That might have been my um, driest martini is what I tend to call that one joint. I had no idea that that would kick me off the fence of reservation and indecision that I didn't even know I was sitting on. What happened is that I... um, I I don't want to live this way anymore. And it wasn't the outside. It was the inside. Loserville. Purposeless. Useless. That's what my life was. The big I was running the show. And the thought came into my mind, those people in AA seem to know what to do. And between that heartbeat and the next heartbeat, I was on a different path. That was a Saturday, and on Sunday I went. I was sober all day, and I went to the meeting. And I, um, I told you I walked in and started. And what happened is that it, I went 20 minutes early. I thought I'd go early, and I thought, you know, 
I felt like I was going the day before, you know, who goes 20 minutes early? Well, like your home group when it's in person and my home group, I mean, 20 minutes early, I'm late at 20 minutes early. And that was that whole group I was in too. They were active and involved and alive. And uh, so, and I'm like, wow, this is going on. And I went to those long timers and I said to them, what do you do to stay sober? I don't know how to say will you help me, but will you do stay sober? Now, they shared with me their experience. They didn't never, nobody's ever told me what to do or anything like that, but they knew for the first time I meant business. I had a different look about me. That's what I look for with who I know as repeat slippers. Is there any humility that accompanied the return or is it just, well, I'm back again. Yeah, here we go, clicking away. Because I know they're going to have another new sobriety date with that kind of arrogance. And, well, got back to AA. I knew that for me, I needed that real shift, that psychic change that happened to me. So I said, what do you do to stay sober? Now, I don't know what they're going to say, but I do know this. I cannot give them the I knows. I mean, if I'm going to do that, why am I going to bother wasting their time? Secondly, I obviously don't know because my life is Loserville. So drop the I knows. And I have that little conversation with sponsees that when I get the I knows, it's like, look, if you know everything, then step aside because you don't need me. You're not willing to grow. You're not willing to learn. So you're going to stay exactly where you are. If you're fine with that, fine. No problem. Step aside because I'm looking for the people who want to grow who want to change, who want to learn, as I do still to this day. The first thing they say is we don't take that first drink, and in my case, any of those other things that would get a sobriety date. And I thought, well, today's as good a day as any. For the first time, I know I'm all in. And that date was February 8, 1976, which means I've been sober with you for over 44 years. It's still my sobriety date because of the remaining things they shared with me. I didn't, couldn't stay sober, didn't enjoy my sobriety. It was felt like doing time clicking off the calendar days. This has been a way of life, much different. So if you are new, maybe you're a little dusty. Maybe you're not enjoying what you're doing. I, I know things are different. We all know this isn't news. But are you, in, are you trying to engage and keep your recovery alive if you're not doing any of these things, perhaps be well, check it out. It's made the difference for me, absolutely. I would not be sober a day at a time for 44 years if I slacked on this stuff, let me tell you. I've seen what that looks like. When it goes from being in recovery to just putting the plug in the jug and not drinking and going to meetings, I need to be alive here. I uh, share with my sponsees a newsletter every month I do. And the opening last month and this month, because I thought it was worth repeating, was a quote I'd seen from Ben Franklin. It says um, something like, most people die at age 25, dot, dot, dot. But they're not buried until they're 75. So the question for me became, whoa, am I, am I among the living or the walking dead? I want to be among the living. 
And the full program of Alcoholics Anonymous allows that to happen for me. So we start with that sobriety date. Um, I took my first drink at 12, my last at 18. The journey was quick, focused, and unintended and unknown that I had alcoholism, but I did. I launched the two primary symptoms the first night I drank, didn't know anything about alcoholism, I'd never seen anyone drunk, but I finally land here with you for a new way of life, February 8, 1976. The six things they shared with me that have changed my life and continue to do that is we go to a lot of meetings and we get a home group. I mean, my amount of meetings on Zoom have like three and four times themselves because of this availability and to be able to go all over the world and things like that. But I've had four different, I'm sorry. Um, I've had four, I don't know if you knew that cat in the background. I'm so sorry. What, what a, she, he's going away. Um, I've had four different home groups. I've lived in four different cities and I've also had four different last names, but that's kind of another story. That's just kind of giving you some numbers there. Uh, my current home group is the primary purpose group. We meet Monday nights, 8 p.m. I know that's 11 p.m. for all of you, but any of you are late birds, let me know. We'll get you the Zoom information. Love to share our group with you because our group's like yours. It's alive, it's active in service, and, and uh, we're a friendly group. Um, I've been a member of that group for the 20 years that I've lived in Northern California, and I'm an invested member. I'm not just a visitor, and I'm not just simply an attender. I am a member. For me, that's a huge difference. I just don't show up. I'm engaged. I'm at the business meetings. I'm part of their service activities. I always have a commitment. These are the things I pay attention to who's there and who's not there, as importantly. So that's a little on home group. Uh, they talked to me about getting a sponsor. Beautiful presentation on sponsorship tonight. And really, if you don't have this guide or mentor, you do not have to do this alone. You don't get any extra brownie points for, I'm going to do it myself. Oh, my God, what a bore is that? Come and do it with us. Come and find out how you walk this path and do, make this easy for you and much more enjoyable. I am on sponsor number four. I had one in Minneapolis. I got another one when I moved to Atlanta. I got my third one when I moved to Southern California, and I kept her when I moved to Northern California, and she just passed away with 50 and a half years of sobriety on January 31st, five days shy of being 98 years old, and we'd been walking the path together 33 plus years. And on February 1st, the very next day, I had 43 years sobriety at that time, I had and started walking with my next sponsor, Marilyn S. And I'll t I tell you that because I've seen an awful lot of people when their sponsor dies or moves, they don't get another one. I've seen the yin and the yang of that. And I knew I wanted to be still choosing accountability to someone that I was involved in because it's hard for me to be a sponsor without someone. And I sponsor women. There's a couple women on this call that are I sponsor and I'm a three legacy sponsor. I have, um, I walk through all three legacies with my sponsees 
because I think that if I only gave them the steps, I'm really cheating them out of the other two legs on that stool. And so I'm a big three legacy gal and they're expected to pass that on too. And so it warms my heart when I hear uh, that, well, we just finished this concept. I'm like, yeah, I love that. I love that stuff. Um, again, speeding through here, they uh, talk to me about taking the steps. So when I got sober, the steps were, you were handed the big book in the late 70s and even before that and maybe even into the early 80s, you were handed the big book, read it, and we'll talk about it. And they just didn't do what we've evolved into doing today, which is tending to, you know, knee to knee and working with um, others and across the way and all that. And so um, the they handed you the book and you did your best. Now, again, Deborah, I'm sorry. I had my timer and then that phone thing threw me off. I don't know where I'm at. Can you tell me how much time I have left, please? Sorry, G. We'll get you in one sec. All right. I'm so... You have seven minutes. I have seven minutes. Thank you. So I have... I fumble and bumble and tumble through the steps. And what happens is I hit a wallet four years sober... And I went into a room marked complacency. I didn't see the sign, but for the next couple of years, instead of being one of the early people and one of the last people to leave, and two years later, I'm, I'm just five minutes before, and amen, shake, shake, and out the door at six years sober. I have evolved into a very severe case of untreated alcoholism. I've never stopped attending. I've gone now to an attender or a visitor, the meetings, but mentally, spiritually, and emotionally, I might as well have been in the parking lot. I was not present. I was watching my watch, when can I get out of here, kind of a thing. What happened is at six years, I came up with a solution that people, places, and things are going to make me happy. It was really called men, money, and mansions are going to make me happy, okay? But that didn't work out too good. I uh, met a couple little fellas, married both of them off to other people, and at 6.9 years of sobriety, I came crashing down physically sober, but so rock bottom empty. It's like I surrendered one more time to the illness of alcoholism. I took those steps again as if I'd never seen them before. I read that big book again as if I'd never read it before. And that's one of the things I do with the sponsees who are very familiar with it. As we do, I know it's not an official AA prayer, but it works very nicely. It's that set-aside prayer. So that I can have a new experience of what I think I know. Let me set that aside so I can have a new experience and not be blocked up by thinking I know. And when I got to that step 12, it didn't tell me to start over. It says, girl, you got your marching orders. Get out there and help somebody else. And every time I walk a sponsee or someone through those steps, I am reliving, retaking, re-experiencing, and deepening my experience with them. But it's not this analysis of me over and over and over. It's experiencing it. 
And he talked to me about the traditions. I said, the, the, you know, those are just for those people. You're a member of a group. You need to know how these traditions function in that way. And while you're at it, why don't you see how they're going to plan your personal life? I came in here with the tools of zero, of no tool skill set except selfish, self-centered, self-serving. By applying those traditions in my life, I got to have grown-up relationships with people now. Wow, isn't that amazing? I didn't know how to apply common welfare, self-support, singleness of purpose, respect for autonomy and outside issues. I didn't know how to do that. The traditions have been the greatest tools of adult, grown-up relationships I've ever had. You said be of service. And you were clear service was the stuff you did outside of the rooms. You always had a commitment in your group, even if you had to make one up. But it's a service that you do. I know that they asked me to dress up. I would have been dressed up whether you asked me or not because I came, I'm coming to you, although you can only see me from about the shoulders up, but hair and makeup and fragrance and hosiery and high heels and jewelry. I'm, I assure you, you would never see me on screen without hair and makeup done. I can promise you that much. But I came to you as if I'd be coming to you in person. I love dressing up for you. I love looking my best for you because you've given me my best. And then they said, carry the message. And I think I'm just about out of time. And my message has been that only through the actions of alcohol I've taken here in Alcoholics Anonymous do I get to live a life. It's not problem free. That wasn't ever given or said or promised. But I've been given a set of tools through these three legacies on how to walk through anything presented. The left, the right, the square, the circle, the black, the white the up, the down, life is a full mixture for me of all of those things. And uh, this, I don't know any other place that I would find that, a place where we can share our experience, strength, and hope from all around the world and what a joy it is to be with, here with you tonight. Thank you so much for having me, and I so pardon, so am embarrassed about all the interruptions, my pardon for that. Thank you for having me. Thank you. My name's Rich. I'm an alcoholic and I chair the Atlantic group. Let's thank tonight's speakers, Scotty, Kat, and Deb.